Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 204 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Aubrey Averles, a uh, political activist who lives in Dallas. As a member of the Political Action Department and State Executive Committee for the Libertarian Party of Texas, Aubrey is committed to lobbying for smaller government and promoting free market principles both in Texas and nationally. Aubrey believes that diverse viewpoints are an absolute necessity in politics, and she enthusiastically communicates her libertarian viewpoints on a regular basis in the hopes of ultimately persuading people that more government is never the answer. Aubrey, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? Excellent. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Sure. So as a member of the Political Action Department, uh, we were pretty active this session uh, in the Texas legislature. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but they only meet once every two years. So we only have about a five-month window in odd-numbered years to, to actually get something done. So this session we really focused on building coalitions with other groups in Texas who were trying to move uh, towards more freedom. So we had the marijuana lobby was very big during this session, so we built a coalition with them, and we were you know, lobbying the legislature and really trying to get them to, uh, at the very least, to legalize medical marijuana. So we were working on that. Uh, we worked with some groups on constitutional carry, you know, where somebody who's a resident of the state of Texas could just carry a weapon without having to go through the licensing process. Uh, and then we worked fairly actively on ballot access initiatives, um, both in Texas and nationally. There's a, a lot of barriers to third-party candidates and independent candidates getting on the ballot, and really that ends up limiting voter choice. So we were very active in and hopefully getting some of those bills passed. And as of right now, it actually looks like we have a good chance to pass uh, the elimination of straight ticket voting in Texas, which would be a huge win. Elimination of straight ticket voting. Can you elaborate on that? Would that prevent an individual who wanted to vote for all Republicans or all Democrats from doing so? Well, they could still vote for all Democrats or all Republicans, but they would need to go down the ballot and select each candidate in each race. As it stands currently, they can select up at the top of the ballot that they want all Republican, all Democrat, or all Libertarian, or you know, any other party that's on the ballot. But if they eliminate it, then they'd have to go and specifically pick each person in each race. Ah, interesting. So it sounds like you have a diverse co you have an interesting coalition with a diverse array of action items. Of course, if you're only working with the state legislature five months out of every 24 months begs the question, what's going on the rest of those 19 months when you're not in session? Sure. So at that point, we're doing a lot of activism out in the communities. Uh, you know, we're going out and we're trying to meet people and we're trying to show them, uh, you know, the merits of libertarianism and why it's something that we believe in. So I know here in Dallas, we go out and we'll go to some of the festivals around town. Uh, one of our big events of the year is the Gay Pride Parade. Uh, we find a lot of individuals in that community are very open to libertarianism because they know that the Republicans traditionally are very close-minded, and the Democrats, while they're very open to that community, there are a lot of times where they're just not understanding a lot of the intricacies, and they still don't fully understand personal freedom. 
So, uh, so like I said, yeah, we're going out in the community. We're doing that type of stuff. Uh, and then we've, we've obviously got individuals all over the state and in other cities in Texas that are also doing those types of activities. And there's also a lot of prep work that goes into the legislative session as well. So a lot of that gets started um, kind of in early 2018. Aside from that, we're also focused on running really good candidates. So candidate recruitment ends up taking up a large chunk of, of 2017 and 2018 because we're trying to vet them, we're trying to get people in the door, trying to figure out what type of candidate they want to be, and really trying to set them off on on campaigns that are both in the aim of hopefully getting elected, but if not getting elected, then you know voter awareness is very important as well. So there are various things that we get into in any given year. So what sort of reception is the Libertarian Party receiving in the state of Texas um, by citizens, and to what extent um, have you been successful in fielding candidates who want elected office? So we have a pretty a pretty open citizenry towards libertarianism, I believe. Uh, you know, guns, marijuana, freedom, a lot of that already exists in the state of Texas. Uh, you know, it's it's a state that's very proud and a state that kind of wants to separate itself from the federal government. I mean, there's even people here that want to break away from the United States. So I, I think it's very ripe for libertarianism. As it currently stands, we do a pretty good job at outreach. We, we haven't seen a ton of success at the polls, but one of the reasons we believe that it's like that is because of that straight ticket voting I was talking about. You know, if we have candidates that go out and they're trying to make people aware of who they are, but then they get to the, you know, the voting box and all of a sudden they don't get to see that person's name and they're not going to vote for them. So with the elimination of that, we hope that we'll also see more success at the polls. But we get a lot of people that say, well, hey, I didn't vote for you because I knew you couldn't win because you're a third party. So we're currently kind of trying to attack that attitude and try to figure out ways that we can say, hey, if everybody who said that they weren't going to vote for a third party candidate because they won't win actually voted for those candidates, then we would probably see a ton of success and we'd probably have a lot more elected libertarians. So on the national um, scene, you did mention the Texans wishing to separate themselves from federal government you find that there is uh, the Tea Party, which has risen uh, within the Republican Party as a libertarian, a self-styled libertarian strain of the Republican Party. Is the Tea Party actually libertarian, and is it something that's strong in uh, Texas, and is it something that you find is aligned with the values that you hold within the Libertarian Party? I think that when the Tea Party started out, they were partially libertarian. Uh, I think they kind of took the stance, well, you know, they took their name obviously from the Boston Tea Party and they, they tried to make themselves look like they were small government Republicans. And I think some of them to this day probably are, but many of them kind of latched on to that as a way to kind of um, separate themselves from you know, the Donald Trump section of the of the Republican Party and, you know, the very traditional and very conservative part of the party. But we see that most of the Tea Partiers aren't really for limited government. They say that they are, but when you start delving into some of their ideas, really they're they want the government to be the same size. They just want it to um kind of be 
for more freedom in some ways, but in a lot of ways, it's just as authoritarian as a lot of the other Republicans are. So, so now I don't really see them aligned with the libertarians all that well. Um, we have a little bit of a presence of them here in Texas, but it's funny because Texas Republicans traditionally are a little bit different than Republicans in other states. I think a lot of them are are very conservative, but then you have a lot of them that are kind of centrist and are kind of leaning towards more towards the Libertarian Party without even knowing it. So the Tea Party has a little bit of a presence, but I wouldn't say that they're anything that, that's making any type of a difference here in Texas. You just mentioned uh, the term centrist in connection with the Libertarian Party. Could you speak about where on the political spectrum, in your eyes, the Libertarian movement is? Is it is it for limited government or more expansive government? I think we know the answer to that one. Is it more aligned with the Republican Party or the Democratic Party? How would you characterize where in the political spectrum the Libertarian Party, especially within Texas, lays? I think that it's kind of on its own spectrum. Um, you know, there's a lot of different types of libertarians. You get the ones who uh, identify as minarchist, which are the ones who want a minimum amount of government. Uh, but definitely not a government the size that we have now. And then that spectrum goes all the way over to the anarchists who even have a couple different categories. I mean, some of the anarchists want to get rid of the government entirely, and then some of them are more voluntarists where they say, hey, the government can exist, but just make it a, a model that I can opt out of if I want to, you know, more voluntary interactions. I think that a lot of times people will say that libertarians are half Republican and half Democrat. It's not entirely false, but it's, it kind of doesn't give libertarianism a, a fair flight because, you know, we, we take a lot of our fiscal conservatism, uh, which looks to be Republican, and then we're also very socially accepting, which kind of comes more from the Democrats. But I think that in all of those beliefs that we have, all of it is centered around, you know, personal responsibility and voluntary interactions. So I, I think that a lot of kind of those two things aren't really present in either party. And I think that's really what makes us special is we say, hey, the individual is the largest minority and we're fighting for the individual. And when the individual has more freedom, then all of the individuals together in society are going to thrive under that system. Now, why would you say that the individual is the largest minority? They are. Basically, everything that the government is doing targets the individual. Uh, you know, anytime they take away any type of a right or they, um, you know, even let's take gun rights, for example. I mean, there's a lot of states where you can get a concealed carry permit, but they're still licensing that right to you. They're basically selling your right to you and saying, oh, hey, here you go. You can have your rights back, but you need to pay for it. And that really makes a situation where, you know, and that's not, that's not race dependent. That's not gender dependent, religion or anything. That is against the individuals. And basically well, it's in the money making. Sure, Aubrey, if I could interject right there. In that particular example, just to kind of flesh out what we're talking about. So if I want to buy a revolver, in Texas, and I want to carry it around, um, you're saying that I also would need to get a license um, or a permit. And of course, uh, and you're saying that I would need to buy the right to have it. I'm wondering what the difference is between having the right needing to buy a license. I mean, if I have if I have the right to carry a gun, but I haven't purchased a gun, then I still don't have a gun, right? I, I need to go out and actually buy a gun 
and then I would need to pay for a license. So there's still kind of a financial barrier, I guess, to getting a gun. And, and to what extent is that even analogous to the idea that I may have a right to drive a car, but I still need to pass a test, purchase a car, buy insurance, and then get licensed? Is there, how would you respond to that? Well, you weren't guaranteed the right to buy a car and drive a car in the Constitution, per se. I mean, I think you could lump that under, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but it's not something that was ever specifically mentioned as part of something that you could expect to have. Guns, on the other hand, that's something that you were supposed to expect to have as guaranteed by the Second Amendment. So you're right, there is a financial barrier to it, even without the licensing part of it. You do have to go out and buy said gun or said car, but why is it up to the government to tell you that you have to pay a licensing fee to to be able to exercise that right with that weapon? Or even in the case of of the car, you know, you have Mm -hmm. to pay licensing fees to the state. You have to get it registered. You have to do safety inspections. You have to jump through so many hoops even when you're just going to drive a car. So um, you mentioned the word government multiple times, and I just would like to elucidate what you are referring to in that case. Clearly, there are many levels of government. You mentioned that uh, some libertarians in Texas Texas would like to uh, limit the influence of the federal government in Washington over Texans, I'm wondering to what extent the Libertarian Party of Texas is interested in limiting the influence of the federal government versus the state government versus municipal government in Dallas. Uh, Are there there different approaches to different levels of government? Um, And are there any – well, let's go with that, and then I have a follow-up question. Sure. So as Libertarians, we want to reduce the size of all government, federal, state, local – Um, You'll hear a lot of libertarians talk about not even really wanting a federal government at all, but being okay with there being a state government because that localizes it. Uh, My argument when I hear that is always, okay, the fact that it's localized doesn't necessarily mean that it's smaller or that it's trampling on your rights any less. So so I personally fight for smaller government on all levels. Uh, You'd ask if it's a different approach at each level, and absolutely. Um, You know, the extent that somebody in Texas can um, affect change at the federal level, it's going to be a little bit lower. I mean, you've got geographical restrictions. You know, I can't travel to Washington, D.C. every day and, and, you know, quit my job and fight for liberty there. But here in the state of Texas, you know, I can go down to Boston. I can talk to my state legislators. I can get all of them, you know, in one building and hit all of them within a couple days and lobby for what it is that I'm looking for. Um, okay, and, and I have a, even easier than federal. I have a follow-up question to that, Aubrey, which is, according to your values and the values of the Libertarian Party in Texas, what would be a good size of uh, city, uh, state, or federal government? Well, I think it's hard to narrow it down and say, you know, a number of people or anything like that. I think a lot of the governments would actually have to go through and kind of be honest with themselves and and try to decide, you know, which members were, um, you know, not necessary. And it's funny because the federal government kind of does that to some extent when they get these, um, you know, the budgets that don't get passed. 
and they'll mm-hmm. tell all non-essential employees to stay home. Well, that right there, they're already telling us who they deem to be non-essential. Mm-hmm. So in cutting the size of the federal government, I see no reason why that's not a good place to start. You've already so, said they're non-essential. Cool, let's cut them. <laughs> okay, so let's go with that. Just to try to conceptually attach some concrete concepts to the Libertarian Party. So, for instance, uh, roads, they're publicly owned. Does the Libertarian Party believe that they should no longer, there should no longer be public roads and the only roads that exist should be toll roads and private, privately funded roads? Is that, how, does the, how does the Libertarian Party feel about roads? Well, that's going to be a function of what level libertarian you are. I kind of got into that a little bit earlier. Um, mm-hmm. I personally believe the government is supposed to be in a very minimal role. I think mm-hmm. you've got your military and you've got kind of basic um, things that they're going to be accomplishing, that they should be accomplishing. Mm-hmm. You know, keep in mind, when, when government goes out and builds these public roads, it's not actually people that work for the government who's doing it. They're contracting it out to private companies. So I think what we would fight for is not necessarily that there wouldn't be any public roads, because you run into a lot of people who say, yeah, I will pay taxes if it goes to things like roads. It, we wouldn't seek to necessarily tell those people, hey, you can't, you can't give money to the roads, but it would more be, hey, why does government have to be the middleman here? Why do you have to have um, – you know, for example, I know the Department of Transportation in Texas has at least at least 100 employees. I'm sure at least 75 of them are not necessary. So we okay. would be seeking to remove some of the people that work in some of these agencies. But again, we, there are some libertarians who would say, no, let's get rid of some of these agencies. And to a certain well, extent, some of the agencies absolutely could go away. Okay. So just, I mean, I just want to, let me throw out a few services. So police, fire ambulance, um, public schools, uh, uh, national and state parks and and local municipal parks, uh, libraries. Start with that small list. Are those things that we need in government or no? Libraries are a good example because actually many of them currently are are majority privately funded. Hmm. So I, I would argue that you don't need public funds for something like that. Uh, police and fire, even across the country, there are a lot of cities that have volunteer fire departments, and they don't take any um, any federal money. They are completely paid for by members of that community. So I think there are a lot of a lot of those services that could be privatized. Um, public schools, a lot of those, you know, they're. I think we can all probably agree that the school system is broken in a lot of ways, and that there's been a lot of you know things thrown out about how we can fix it, I think a good place to start is to kind of look at the fact that, you know, these schools just take federal money and really it's just based off of test scores. So mm-hmm. I think if we were really, if we were going to keep public schools around, we'd want to want to absolutely dig into why they're not performing the way that they should. And a lot of it is going to be because government regulations are telling them to focus on one thing when that isn't necessarily conducive to a child actually learning. Um, Parks, you get a lot of people in communities that donate for, for parks as well. You know, you see it when you go and you see the benches and there's a, a name on the bench because they've sponsored a certain part of the park. I think there are a lot of these services that government's involved in where there's already a large percentage of private donating going on. So I see no reason why you can't remove a lot of that government funding 
and then you're putting more people or more money in people's pockets so that they can they can donate to these pet projects. You know, you'll get some people that say, "Man, I really love libraries," and they're going to give more money there. Or, "Man, and I just, really love public parks. I'm going to give more money there." And just zooming out a bit because we're we're getting um we're, we're we're touching upon a theme which I think is really good. To, but before we clarify what that theme is, just a quick question: zooming out a bit to levels of government, should there be uh, legislatures? Should there be government? Uh, sh- sorry, should there be, should there be mayors? Should there be city council members? Should there be state legislatures? Should there be um, public judiciary branches? Should there be publicly funded courts and judges? Um, are these things uh, that you believe uh, different levels of government should be funding? The justice system is kind of a um, a tough one. There's there's not a lot of agreement on that one. Some people would like to see that remain public. Others would like to see it privatized. Uh, I think that the justice system probably is best remaining a part of the government only because it's um, it'd be hard to get a private company involved and to say that they're remaining completely um, kind of removed from the results. And, you know, it just seems odd to put a system where you're making profit off of putting people in jail. But Mm -hmm. to a certain extent, kind of the system we currently have does a little bit of that. So I, I think I, I, on that one, I, I would say I haven't made a full decision on what that should look like. Um, but as far as the levels of government go, oh, I, before, I personally believe that. Go ahead. Uh, Aubrey, before we move away from the ju- justice system, I just want to see, would you be all right with privately owned and operated prisons? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Because um, uh, you just made a statement that said, you, uh, and I'm glad we clarified that because you said um, that you weren't sure if you wanted individuals, uh, private companies motivated by profit to put people away in prison, but it would be okay if the prisons were privately operated and motivated by profit. Is there, how would you distinguish between the two? Yeah, what uh, the part that I was saying I wasn't sure if private companies should be involved would more be on the judicial side of things, the just, mm-hmm. you know, that part of the justice system versus the prison part of it. I kind of separate out those two. Okay. So, um, so it sounds like the general theme that we're coming that's coming across here from the libertarian value structure is that many public services today can be just as adequately provided through private means. And it's not that we don't need libraries, and it's not that we don't need fire uh, fighters and, and police services or or prisons or schools, but that all those things can be provided. Uh, through private voluntary contributions instead of public uh, mandatory uh, institutions that are funded through mandatory taxation structures. Is that a fair assessment of some of the libertarian values that you've articulated today? Absolutely, and that's a very uh, concise and proper way to put it. Um, A lot of people think libertarians are selfish and we just want to abolish education and we don't care about the kids. No, we think education should remain in place, but there's a better way to do it that doesn't burden all taxpayers and make them poorer. Right. So at the end of the day, let's say public education in Dallas, and if if libertarians had their way, there would still be schools in Dallas, and these schools would still cost money. 
And the money that would fund these schools would still come from individuals in Dallas to some extent. But not everyone in Dallas would be coerced into paying taxes that would fund the schools. These individuals would still be paying money in order to provide education to five-year-olds because not too many five-year-olds will be paying much in taxes for their own education. But it will be done more of a voluntary basis instead of in a, in a t- mandatory taxation structure. That's basically the way you would like things to be in Dallas. Is that correct? Correct, yes. You know, a lot of that, you're going to have a lot of taxpayers that will still contribute to schools. Me, personally, I would still contribute to schools if it weren't mandatory because I do believe that schools are important. Um, But, yeah, you you just wouldn't make it a mandatory thing that everybody has to pay into, especially, you know, if if you have people that don't have any children. So to flesh it out, would you like to see – suppose that this is the way it was. Would you like to – pay a voluntary tax for schools to be remitted to the school district or the state, or would you want to allocate uh, money from your bank account to go towards a particular middle school, elementary school, and high school? Uh, me, personally, I don't have any particular ones that I'm, I'm fond of, so I personally would be okay with just allocating it to Dallas area schools. Uh, but I suspect you'd have a lot of people that would want to allocate it specifically to their child's school or their grandchild, or maybe some people just say, hey, this school is a block away from my house. I want the money to go there. Would you have any concerns, and you may not, and that would be perfectly fine, would you have any concerns that wealthier areas would tend to attract more voluntary funding for wealthier kids and that poorer neighborhoods might not receive any funding or adequate funding for schools since no, not as many individuals in the poor areas would be able to voluntarily contribute to support their own school system. Would that concern you? I think that's a common concern that's brought up. But if you look at the way that schooling is currently set up, especially in the city of Dallas, the mm-hmm. rich areas absolutely have better schools than the poorer areas. So what people fear in a voluntary situation is what's already happening. So I think in a voluntary situation, though, you'd probably see more people that say, hey, this school over here already has enough money. It's already making an impact for the students. Let's go ahead and spread that money around to schools that aren't seeing as much money. And that would kind of be part of the the purpose of a more general fund. You know, if you have a city of Dallas general fund, that would then be allocated more to the schools that aren't getting as many uh, directed donations. Okay, so I see this. So it sounds like it's kind of creating a different a mirror that's, that's slightly different from the way society currently operates because you're still trying to influence how money is being spent for what services, but instead of doing it through elected officials, you'd be doing it, I guess, on a more, I guess, a more local grassroots basis is basically how this, these programs would be operated. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of kind of the way a lot of the voluntary programs operate in certain areas. I mean, you have um, local food pantries that are run by churches that is serving the local community. Uh, or you have volunteers that go out and they, um, you know, volunteer with kids who don't have strong role models as parents, or maybe they, they don't have any parents that are involved at all. You know, most volunteering is on a very local level. So this is taking that idea and applying it to, you know, what many would qualify as essential services. So as we 
wrap up this podcast, um, a final question, which is I'd like, Aubrey, for you to speak to our listeners about why it is that you are so – because you mentioned you do have another job um, and that you do this – that you're involved in the Libertarian Party, it sounds like, on a volunteer basis. To what extent – why would you – could you please speak to our listeners about why you're giving of yourself, why you so strongly believe in the libertarian philosophy, why you're trying to advance the public interest as you see it through the Libertarian Party, and what you hope your efforts will achieve? Sure. I think for me personally, I look around and I see a lot of ways that government is hurting people. Uh, you know, they're putting people in prison for nonviolent crimes. Uh, they're, you know, ticketing people for going two miles an hour over the speed limit or they're, you know, giving ridiculous property tax rates or, or whatever the case may be. There are so many ways that the government is hurting, not just me, but everybody. And I think as an individual who sees that and really pays attention to it, because a lot of people don't get politically involved. They've kind of been turned off the system or they're not interested in it. So I think as somebody who's interested in it, I think it's kind of my duty to get involved and try to show people why they should not just sit back and let the legislators do whatever they want. They should get involved. They should be upset about what's happening. And it's not until we get a large amount of people who are upset and who get active that we're actually going to see any change. Complaining on Facebook doesn't help. Uh, you know, running around calling all news fake, while a lot of it is these days, you know, that's not going to help anything either. Burying your head in the sand, it's not going to fix anything. And until we stand up and say we're not going to take this and here's what needs to happen, it's not going to happen and we're just going to keep going down this path that we're currently going down. And I'm not personally okay with that not for my generation, not for the generations that come after. I think this is a great country, and traditionally it has been, and I don't want to see it just fall by the wayside because the people have decided that they're just going to let our rulers do whatever they want. And that has been Aubrey Erols, a political activist who lives in Dallas, Texas, a member of the Political Action Department and the State Executive Committee for the Libertarian Party of Texas. She's committed to lobbying for smaller government and promoting free market principles in Texas and nationally, um, and doesn't believe that government, more government, is the answer. Aubrey speaks about advancing the public interest as uh, a core value of hers. She finds that uh, apathy is the enemy of progress and that people ought to take ownership of their communities and have agency in the direction of their societies. Aubrey's core belief set is shaped by a sense that uh, volunteerism is preferable to coercion and that uh, ennobling and empowering individuals to take to, to make their own choices, to take direct ownership of their own societies on a very local level based off uh, as simple a model as a food pantry in a local church or a volunteer fire service in a local community is a model that she would like to see expanded and believes that advancing that sort of model, one that limits government at all levels, uh, is one that truly would advance the public interest. So, Aubrey, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes, leave a review 
of this podcast on iTunes and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcasts. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.